founders, what's going on. You guys know I love in-person events and they are back. The recording you're about to hear is from our most recent event where we had hundreds of founders come together, share intimate details, templates, KPIs, OKRs about their business. And it was something special, something special. We'd love to meet you in person. If you want to see the next live events we have coming up via our schedule, the link will be down below in the description. If you're listening on iTunes, check this out on YouTube. You'll see the links in the description, or you can just Google Founder Path or Latka next event. We'd love to see you in person. In the meantime, though, enjoy this recording. It's a good one. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to getlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to getlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at getlatka.com. So we're going to focus today, really based on Nathan's request, on, on kind of a journey. Um, and let me get this slide, figure this out real quick. Here we go. Uh, kind of a three-part story from being an operator, building a company, becoming a leader in the space, selling that company, kind of transitioning to an advisor investor, where I then invested through either directly or through some venture groups in about 400 companies, sat on the boards of lots of companies, uh, be honest, got bored with that, and wanted to move back into the operator space, uh, kind of with the next journey which is a pretty typical story for a lot of founders that are probably in this room, that once you're an operator, it's hard not to be an operator. And I also found that I wasn't a great advisor. I was an okay advisor, but I always wanted to actually do the work, and the founders don't like that. Like, they, they want you to advise, stay out of their business. I wanted to actually get in and do some of the work that was there. So to kind of kick things off, we're going to start with the story of a company called Archer Technologies. Uh, Archer was a company that I founded in 2001. Um, I'm going to share just some basics of the company with the products and the revenue to set the stage. And then we'll jump into kind of lessons learned, things that we did right, and then things we didn't do so good that I would, would have changed that's there. So from a growth perspective, uh, what's interesting about Archer was that we were profitable in the first year of doing business. And I'll share with you how we did that in just a minute. It was a very different market back in 2000, 2001. Uh, there wasn't a lot of funding that was available. 9-11 had just happened. Things begin to kind of shut down. So we really had to focus on, we were bootstrapped as well through year eight. We really had to focus on customers and revenue and how we uh, could hire employees. And you'll kind of see the growth rate here through the last year. When we sold the company, we were around 33 million, <coughs> excuse me, in revenue. As a company, we focused on uh, seven core products. I'll, I'll share the idea in just a minute. But the, the overall idea was to help manage security and compliance processes in the same way that a business would manage uh, accounts payable, accounts receivable, HR, those types of processes in organizations. We had seven core solutions that we eventually had in the company. Each of those solutions were priced at $50,000 a pop. An average customer for us was around four hundred grand with some add-ons uh, that were there. Okay? And I'll tell you the story on how we sold that in a minute, which is interesting as well. So here's kind of the basics of the story. So my background prior to founding Archer was I had the opportunity to build the uh, global cybersecurity practice at Ernst & Young. <clears throat> and I had the chance to travel the world. We had about 1,500 consultants in that practice. 
I'd meet with customers to understand how they're managing security in the organization, mainly from an aspect of things were going online. They had online stores, online banking was coming on, and they needed us to help them understand how do we secure those systems so that we can stay online. So the opportunity was for Archer was to take that service that we've been providing at Ernst & Young and turn that back into a product that we could sell and manage as a process and organization. Um, the challenge that we had was that um, it hadn't been done before. And as a small startup with the big idea, how do you approach people with a new way of thinking about how to manage security in an organization, right? At the same time, Archer was bootstrapped uh, from day one. Um, we didn't take funding until year eight, which I'll share some of that in just a minute um, from you. So we didn't have a lot of capital. I put in, I think, 750000 to start the company uh, to kind of get things kicked off. Uh, the market focus for the organization uh, started with financial services, moved into telco, moved into healthcare, moved into technology. At the end of the day, I think we had 76 of the Fortune 100 were customers after like the first six years uh, of the company. So mainly enterprise level accounts, an average customer would have 80 to 100,000 uh, users of our product inside of the organization. Uh, renewal rates were pretty interesting. Over nine years, 97.6% renewal rate. So we only lost three customers in nine years. Two of those customers were because of acquisitions by another customer uh, that had them. One of those was Lehman Brothers that went out of business that was there. So we found that things were very sticky uh, that was there. Uh, we sold the product um, as a SaaS offering, but SaaS wasn't really around in 2001. So we approached EDS, which was our first customer, with an idea and said, hey, we can come in and solve this problem for you. We're going to treat it as a process. And oh, by the way, you're going to pay us the same amount of money every year. And they said, well, how much money is that? And I said, $800,000. And they came back and said, we'll pay you $1.1 million. And I'll share why they said that in just a minute. So they became our very first customer before we ever wrote a line of code. So I went to EDS with a little three and a half inch diskette, for those of you that remember diskettes. Had an HTML version that basically was a PowerPoint that showed all the different screens on how things would, would look. And at the end of that presentation, uh, they stood up and said, we need your product. How soon could you have it developed if we move forward with you? And I'm like, oh my god. Like, I don't have a developer. <laughs> we haven't written a line of code. So I just shared it with them. I was just up front and said, hey, here's where we're at. It's an idea. I've got everything documented. We need to go build it. Uh, it's there. And I'll share a little bit more in just in, in a minute about that. Um, the next thing that we did, I told you in year eight, um, we raised capital for the first time uh, in the organization. Not because we needed cash. You saw from the, the prior screen that we, were, uh, we had a pretty good cash flow uh, in the business. It allowed me to take some money off the table as a founder, and it really opened up to stop thinking about money every day. You know, every day I would come in the office, and the first thing I would look at is the bank balance, just to make sure that we were in a good position to pay everybody that was on the team. But it, it freed me from that, and it allowed us to really grow the business in the last nine months to 12 months after that uh, investment from Bain. And if you go out into one of my breakout sessions uh, after this, I'm happy to share uh, more information about what was so valuable with the Bain relationship that we had. Uh, and then what happened after the Bain investment was that in year, um, Bain came in in year eight, and about seven months later, we were started getting approached by outside organizations about partnerships acquisitions. 
Uh, we weren't planning on selling the company at that time, um, but it just happened pretty quick. Uh, so we went from Bain came in and invested, uh, I think it was a $70 million pre. It allowed me to take some money off the table. They bought about 20% of the company. They allowed the employees to cash out a portion of their uh, stock options at that time. So it was, it was kind of a good event for everybody. Looking back, it wasn't a great event because then we sold the company for $200 million nine months later uh, that was in there, which the employees would have kind of hung on to those options, uh, some of them. So as Nathan was saying, when we, when we found out that we needed to kind of start a process and people were looking at us, Bain Capital came in and said, look, we need to hire an investment banker. We need to create a, a deck. We really need to go after this to make sure that we get the best price for the company. You have an offer in hand, but the minute that they know you have a deck, an investment banker, and that you hire the best of the best, they're not going to retrade that value with you, right? It's only going to go up from that point forward. So it allowed us to send this deck out, not to the world. We were pretty selective. I think we sent it out to about seven organizations that we thought would have interest back in, in this space. Three of them responded. Um, only one of them was super serious, and that was EMC. And they wanted to do the deal in four weeks, in one month, which was unheard of. Uh, EMC, I don't know if, if you, EMC is eventually sold to Dell a couple of years ago, but they had 43,000 employees. I don't remember their revenue, but we were their 51st acquisition. So they were a company that grew by acquisition. They had a team of 40 people on the acquisition team. That, that, that's all they did, was go from company to company, analyzing um, and then onboarding companies that were acquired uh, by the organization. So this deck, this memorandum that we put together, allowed us to get an offer for $187 million, But what was key, when, when we got to the LOI here, is that we also got to keep the cash that was in the business. So the deal was really north of $200 million, um, because of that simple item. And the way we got to that point, and it's key for a lot of founders that I work with, is understand how much working capital the business needs. Make sure that that is communicated in the memorandum so that you can negotiate through the LOI with, hey, here's what I need. And in this particular case, the business generated enough free cash flow each month to more than pay for uh, the business needs. So it allowed us to sweep about $15 million, uh, additional money out of the company. So let's focus on, here's what we did right. This is what I wanted to spend most of the time talking about. And I'm getting old and it's hard to actually read the, the monitor in front of me with the, with the items. But um, the first thing that we did right at Archer was we listened to the customer. And what that really meant was the first year and a half of the business, I spent my time not in the office. I was at customer sites. I was at EDS watching them and learning how they would use a product like this inside of an organization of 80,000 people. Um, I thought I was a pretty big deal, CEO of a company. They put me in a phone closet. <laughs> That's where I sat. Um, there was, it, it had, you know, all the tech was in there. I had my little chair and my desk and I couldn't even do meetings in there. I had to walk out to meet with everybody. But I just sat there and watched and listened to how they would use it. 
I was on the phone back to our development team saying, add this feature, add this other feature that's in here. And then I would quickly iterate back with the organization uh, to say, hey, is this what you meant? And we did that then with Credit Suisse First Boston, with Lehman Brothers, uh, with Goldman Sachs. And that allowed us to really get the version one of our product to where it needed to be to sell to the, the remainder of the financial services companies. Um, the second thing that we did right was we really thought about who we were trying to sell to. And for us, it was the top 30 financial services companies in the US. And the reason for that was that those companies, if, if we were in one of those companies, it was easier for us to go to a tech company, a telco company, or a healthcare company and say, Goldman Sachs is already using Archer. Shouldn't you take a look at that, right? So we decided to focus just on those top 30. We broke it down into groups of 10, and we would only sell into those 10 one at a time. So the sales team, which was my wife, would come back and say, I've got this other opportunity. I'm like, is it in financial services? Is it one of those top 10? No. Forget about it. People, marketing team would come in and say, hey, we have an RFP. Forget about it. We're only selling into these 10. And people were frustrated with me in the first year and a half, two years. But what happened was we sold 29 of those 30 companies. And that's what launched us to sell to everybody else, right? Was at the beginning, we were very focused on, on who we were selling to, why we were selling to them, and then it gave us the momentum to go to a Microsoft and to a Dell and to an eBay with some credentials to say, hey, here's you know, City, Goldman, Lehman, who, who's using the product. Um, with our product, what I didn't mention at the beginning was that we were one of the first no-code platforms ever developed back in 2000. Anybody remember who the, the first, sometimes I call them the second no-code platform really was? Salesforce, right? Um, before that, there were things that were kind of in that space, but that Salesforce and Archer were the first two products that really took a, a no-code approach to solving a problem that related to a process. So every customer could go in and configure that process just a little bit differently, but it was one code base. So across our 100 plus customers that we had, every one of those were different. None of them had the same UI look and feel branding, but they were all on a single code base uh, that was there. So that was a, a huge advantage for us. Uh, from a people perspective, uh, we found that the best people for us to recruit were coming from some of the big X accounting firms. And the reason for that was that, let's take Accenture as an example. When, when somebody would come out of school and go to an Accenture, they would spend two to three months at a boot camp learning about process automation and how to serve clients. And that whole process, they kind of came out of that, it's like a mini MBA type program. And if we could find those people in year three, so they've kind of, they've, They've had time at customers. They've been through the boot camp. We could bring them in, teach them our business. Those people just excelled. And what I didn't mention about Archer at the beginning was that we sold that company in 2009, but that company now does $700 million, uh, a year in recurring revenue, 90-plus percent renewal rates going public this year. I, I don't know. I, I hear numbers anywhere between 5 and $12 billion, but it's going to be a big, it's a big number. What's fun about that is a couple of those Accenture people that I hired in year three now run the company. Not the CEO, but they're the two, two main folks that are there. Of the folks that we had in the company, 
there's probably 50 people that have been there over 15 years now. Since we exited, they stayed in, continued to run. All of them came from the IBM, Accenture, Deloitte, KPMG kind of background that was there. So the main theme there was understand who you want to hire and try to find people that are already trained to bring in, you know, back into your organization. What credit card should I use? You guys have heard this. If you're scaling with 10, 20 employees, you know that your lead developer needed your credit card data to sign up for Jira or Trello. Your head of marketing needed the credit card to sign up for Facebook ads. Or your head of HR needed a credit card or your credit card data to sign up for that Delta trip you need to take to that next conference. Nobody understands or understood how to track this stuff efficiently and effectively until Ramp came along. Create virtual or physical cards for everybody on your team as you grow and build your SaaS company. Quickly log into Ramp and see where there are discounts you might be able to get that you didn't know about. For example, maybe you save 100 bucks a month on Trello or 20 bucks a month on your email marketing provider. Ramp has all these listed in their platform and you can assign a credit card, both virtual or and physical, to every employee and set limits. That way, you can quickly see if your dev tool spend is going up. Are you spending more on Trello? Or are Facebook ads increasing too fast? Or are you spending too much on travel? It's incredible the amount of insight you can see inside the Ramp dashboard. I got a look the other day and I was blown away. I said, I've got to partner with these guys. Check it out today at nathanlacka.com forward slash ramp. That's nathanlacka.com forward slash ramp. I'm not going to tell you about the special bonus you'll see, but once you go to the landing page, you'll see there's a big with two zeros bonus on this page, nathanlacka.com forward slash ramp. Check it out today because time is money and I want you to save both. Then if we go to the next slide, talk a little bit about, because there's a lot of people in here building inside sales teams, which is your third lesson learned here. Talk to us a little bit about how you structure that inside sales team. How many reps, quota targets, things like that. Sure. So one of the lessons learned was that we, we should have done inside sales earlier. Bain Capital came to us and said, hey, this is a growth engine. You really need to get going. We had four sales reps that made up the uh, in the 2008 number that you see there, we had seven sales reps that made up the 2009 number, the 32 million uh, that we had. And I'm happy to share this kind of in the breakout in more detail. But Bain Capital came to us and said, hey, here's seven portfolio companies that we have that use inside sales. They use this process called a sales bus. Let's go visit them, talk with the sales team leads, understand how they're doing inside sales. Um, some of them were just getting started. Some of them were doing millions of dollars a month in revenue. Uh, a sales bus includes seven people that's on a bus that has a leader and six people around the bus, uh, around the outside. Each person is organized based on their sales in the last month from seat one to seat six uh, that's in there. So everybody knows exactly where everybody else is at. What we learned and what they taught me from that is that, first off, Always try to hire a full bus if you can, which is seven people. But if you can't, hire in threes. The reason for that is the best salespeople are competitive. You hire two, it's okay. One could always be better than the other one, and the other one's okay. You hire three, it's a little different dynamic uh, that's in place. Uh, I was deadly against inside sales, to be honest, at the beginning. Um, didn't think that they could sell enterprise software. Uh, in the first month, we had one of our inside sales reps sell an enterprise deal in Germany over the phone. There was no Zoom, any of that. That was just an over the phone uh, sales call. An average rep for us did a million two to a million five per year. When EMC came in, they're a sales focused company. Those numbers doubled and in some cases tripled per sales rep. Like we had on our enterprise sales team, 
we had reps that had quotas of six million a year. That was their inside sales reps, two and a half million. But for us, when we first got started, uh, a million and a half. Two other things that we learned very quickly that I wish I would have done different is that the global market's much, much bigger than the US market. So get your internationalization ready, multiple languages on day one. It's much harder to do that after the fact uh, that's in place. We spent way too much time and attention trying to get ready to go to market globally in year six and seven. We should have just did that in year one uh, that was there. The second one is architecture matters. We had the same problem. Um, we should have focused on our first feature should have been you know, scalability and speed. And we were focused on features first, and that bit us in the butt in year six as we really started to grow. And again, it took, we had to pause for about a year to kind of get to where we needed to be uh, from an architecture perspective. So John, as you move into part two of your presentation, you're being super humble, so we're gonna change this to interview style. Is that okay? <laughs> All right. It's, it's way easier, trust me. Um, so let's do interview style. Talk a little bit about why after you sold EMC, you decided to go into the advisor role. You, I mean, did you know you were gonna be bored doing this? I, I did not. And, there's a couple things. I, I, first off, I thought I knew everything because we were pretty successful uh, that was there, which was, I, I learned very quickly, probably in year four or five of that, that there's a lot of different ways to do things. And the way we did it was just one way. I have friends that did it a very different way that were even more successful. So what was the style? You were taking equity in companies. Was it mainly B2B SaaS or how'd you style the advisor shares you were going after? Was that part of your standard deal? Yeah, so I invested either directly uh, through companies, mainly in SaaS companies uh, that was there. So I would take, in a lot of cases I put in 250 was kind of the minimum number that we would put in. Um, and then I would take an advisor role or a board seat inside of those companies. I found pretty quickly that it wasn't good for me to be the only person in a deal. That the companies that had other people like me or venture folks that were in the deal were more successful. So then I kind of pivoted to more venture investing. So I have about 11 uh, venture companies that I work with, that I've invested in their fund, they invest back into companies and then they reach out to me when they feel that I have expertise in a particular area that can help the entrepreneur. And that worked much better for us. And so then going to the smart suite story, and this was so fascinating because you ran EMC, you ran Archer profitably, you're growing like crazy. Did you guys see part of the Bain deck already? You sh I think you already shared that, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, incredible story. So how does your brain now switch to the thing of, okay, I'm gonna be pre-revenue for three years. I'm gonna spend 12.5 million bucks on MVP. I'm gonna hire over, I think, hundreds of contractors. How did you get your brain in that space and why did it take so long and so much money in your opinion? Sure, well, let's talk about the idea first that, that was in place. So, you know, as I visited and worked with these 400 venture companies that I had, one of the first questions that comes up most of the time is, what's the infrastructure that we need to have in place as an organization just to get started, right? We need sales and marketing and HR and IT and customer success products to do things. And I got really frustrated with always having that discussion. And the idea from, from SmartSuite was to transform the way businesses get work done by providing a single platform that could manage any workflow process or project in the company, right? So it's basically taking hundreds of point solutions that people have, building that into a framework where all of that can be in one core platform. So you don't need all these different sales tools, marketing tools, HR tools. You just, you've got one product that provides 90 to 95% of those capabilities right from the beginning. So the lift was massive, right? It's a big idea. We, it, it, we knew it was gonna take about two years. It actually took two and a half years of development time about 100 developers that were just working night and day to kind of, if we go to the next slide, to kind of build out all these core capabilities in this platform that would make that a reality. 
And once those, those capabilities are done, if you flip to the next slide. Well, talk real quick. You did something here also interesting. I, I joke that we're not far away from somebody launching a SaaS company and taking it public, and they're the only employee. You have remote.com, you have these things, you can just hire a bunch of contractors. I'm just, someone's gonna do it one day. Um, talk to me about why you went this route. I mean, you what are the numbers? You hired hundreds of contractors. Yeah, so we, we basically, uh, we have no employees uh, in place. I have two co-founders. Um, we hired teams of people inside of companies. I think we have five different main companies that we work with from a development perspective. So we have a mobile team, we have a web team, we have and a Name some of them, because people are on the computers. What's the mobile team you used? Yeah, so we use eCreative out of Ukraine. I'll talk about Ukraine in just a minute. Uh, uh, we use Gearheart out of U Ukraine, and then we use a company called Agency Enterprise uh, out of California that does a lot of work for SpaceX. So they're kind of our high-end developers. We way overpay for them, but they're really, really good. Oh, come on, what's way overpay? Uh, 12.5 million. Yeah, they, they go for about 175 an hour uh, for, their, for their core developers, right? Um, the Ukrainian folks are typically in the 50 to $75 uh, an hour rate uh, that's there. Similar quality, but the U.S. folks have a little more experience working with big data, uh, some of the more uh, complex architecture issues that we need to solve. So it's out now, right? Over 200 workflows you've now launched. Talk to me about the building up to the launch, what was going through your brain, how'd you set the initial price point? Yeah, so we launched six weeks ago, I think the second week in January, uh, for the first time. Uh, in that first six weeks, we've had about six... Wait, 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 hold on. Okay, before he tells you his numbers. <laughs> um, so he launched, he launched the paywall six weeks ago. Okay, so what I'm going to do is on the count of three, I just want you guys each, everyone just say how much monthly recurring revenue you think he's doing now, sort of six weeks in after building for three years. Okay, ready? One, monthly recurring revenue. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, so the average is about 12.5K across the sample size of 118 people. Uh, are you comfortable sharing what MRR is today? Yeah, I'll, I'll share the range. So we're in the 85 to 90K uh, per month range uh, right so now. Zero to a million bucks in a, this is why I'm like, you need to come in. Because I'm like, I'm gonna grill this guy, he spent so much money on MVP, but now, the way you've built your tentacles into so many distribution plan things pre-launch, you launch and go from zero to a million dollar run rate in basically four and a half weeks is incredible. So speak a little bit to the distribution tactics you set up pre-launch, comparison sites, things of this nature. Yeah, so I think the first thing we did was we've automated the process to come in with a trial account. So we make it super easy for someone to buy enterprise level software uh, by clicking on your site and starting a trial. It's $10. Our, our base pricing starts at $10 per user per month, and then all the way up through our enterprise is $35 per month uh, per user. Um, everything that we've done is organic. Um, so we reached out to a lot of the comparison sites and filled out surveys uh, for them to do, or requests for them to do reviews of our products. Just name um, a couple of those sites. Yeah, we started with Product Hunt, you know, actually, you know, G2, Capterra, um, you know, just that whole group of sites where they actually do product reviews and let people come in and, and view your product. A lot of them as a, have signed up as affiliates through our affiliate program as well. And what's your kickback on the affiliate program? So we've had, um, so far we're, I think we're today we're like 325 affiliates that have signed up. Uh, we offer them 50% commission of the first year revenue. So that allows us to have a sales force that's kind of international from day one. And then it ends 50% year one? Ends at the end of year one. Okay. So basically we're we're overpaying for those customers in the first year, but those customers we wouldn't have without those affiliates. So I don't feel like we're overpaying, we're breaking even, but in year two, we'll start making money on, on the deals the affiliates bring. And how many of the 325 affiliates have earned at least a dollar already? Ooh, I don't have an exact number, but I would say probably 35%. There's a, a lot of them are have 
accounts that are in trial right now that will convert after 30 days. And so the interface looks incredible, uh, right? Uh, you can speak maybe a little bit to that here if you want um, before we move into other takeaways and wrap up. Sure, yeah. So what we found when, we, when I started meeting with customers was that the biggest single thing that they needed from a work management platform was the user interface that focused on the people that actually do the work, which are people ages 23 to 38 is what we found. So we, I sought after and tried to find a person or a team that could help me with the UI that had done something different that I'd never seen before. And I happened to find a, a guy um, of all places in Bulgaria, in Sofia, Bulgaria. I went and met with him. He's just interesting and different. John, how do you find these people? Like, you what do you go on Craigslist and it's like Bulgaria? You, I just got online and used my network. I looked at Upwork, Fiverr. Like I just tried to find the top people and just looked at the style and the type of work that they'd done. Storgan had never worked in this industry before, but he had that eye and that style that I liked uh, that was there. So I met with him. We spent two or three days together. We just hit it off. I mean, he's just a, a super great guy. And he was just super excited. And I said, you need to leave all your other customers and you need to work with me 100%, just me. And after the first end of the first three days, he said, deal. But you met him through Fiverr? Or I met Upwork. him through Upwork. Yeah, this is, a, this is also a tactic that uh, I see over and over, but very few people will say it publicly. But this is a great way to find great talent because you put up the same project, so you have a design spec, to 30 people on Upwork. You pay them all their rate. You collect all the designs. Then you pick the best one. I don't know I'd fly to Bulgaria. Fly and meet them and then pr try and move them full-time. So he's now, is he basically now full-time with you? He is, yeah. and his team. So he's got a team of three or four people that work with him, uh, very reasonable rates for that team. Um, and they got rid of everything else about a year and a half ago, so they, that's basically our design team. Anything else you want to add in before you take it home? I just say we did the same thing on the development side. We found our, our core people in all places of the Ukraine. I'd never been to the Ukraine before, so I flew to Kiev, met with the first person that was there. I, I still remember after about an hour, I'm like, oh my God, I found the perfect person with the right team to actually build a product like this, and I'd been searching for like six months and found them there. Uh, fast forward about six months after that, I was searching for a mobile team. Well, John, hold on. So obviously that's a sensitive, you know, we're, there are things happening right now. Talk a little, I mean, how is your Ukraine team doing? Or I mean, I don't even know the right question to ask. How are you thinking about those guys? Yeah, I, I, did, I wanted to mention that at the end. It's, um, they're in a difficult spot, and you know, they're people just like us. They talk like us, work like us. I mean, they're just normal people. They wake up one day and they're getting bombed. And we have people in cities that, that don't have places to live anymore. They don't have gas, electric power. They're cooking outside with fire. Uh, they can't leave the cities that they're in. It, it's just incredible. Some people we can't communicate with for two, three days at a time until they get a mobile signal to, to just send a text to let us know that they're okay. Uh, from a business perspective, it's been challenging with the work that we're doing, but we've kind of got that worked out in the last week or so, so it hasn't affected us. But there's about 60 people there that are just outstanding people that are, are really struggling. Yeah. And there's a lot. I mean, when you look at all of the speakers and everyone's FT headcount or full contractor headcount, about, about, well, about 35, 40% of the speakers have team members in Ukraine. Um, I don't, uh, Mikita's not here, but you'll hear from him tomorrow. Uh, yeah, I mean, raise your hand if you've hired talent in Ukraine, and they're phenomenal, right? I mean, look at that. Yeah. It's, right, phenomenal talent. So obviously, um, sending the best, you know, thoughts, prayers, everything else. Um, the best thing I think we can do is just feature their stories, talk about their talent, and celebrate them and hope for the best. Exactly. To be honest, it, it's only going to get worse for them for a period of time, so it's not going to get better. Anything you can do to support them, you can go to our website, smartsuite.com. 
We have a little link at the bottom that you can click on that shows you different ways that you could support them, uh, either through money or you know, closed donations, just, just different ideas. And I, I would also ask the teams that are working with them, give them a break for a week or so. You know, let them recoup. They really want to work and they're super stressed out that they're not going to have jobs on top of everything else that's happening to them. Awesome. Uh, switching, switching back, um, let's go ahead and sort of wrap up with some of these key takeaways here. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that you know the first key takeaway is it's unusual to spend twelve and a half million dollars on a on an MVP, but for the idea that we had here, it was something that we needed to do. I personally put that money in uh, to date. You still own one hundred percent, then, right? I do. Okay, got it. So when Correct. you say you had two co-founders, you just pay them really well. I, well, I, I gave each co-founder just a, a small percentage um, to date. I don't like under one percent each. I, I don't want to say no. It's more than one percent, but more than five. It, it's two people that worked. <laughs> <laughs> in that range, let's say. Uh, it's two people that I worked with at Archer. It was our CTO and our director of our Archer Labs, and I recruited them to kind of come back in and start this new venture with me. So it, it's like we've got the team back together again, which is fun. It's funny to watch this evolution, right? Monday and Roy Mann back in 2015 on the podcast, very confident, a lot of growth, IPO, doing well. Then Zeb comes along with ClickUp. Eats their is eating their lunch. Uh, ad spend wars everywhere. Click up on freaking urinals at the airport. You see these ads everywhere. The reason I wanted you to come is because I think your kind of story with this kind of focus, building it this way, is sort of what eats ClickUp's lunch potentially if it works. So we're rooting for you, guys. Give it up for John Darby Shari Smart Suite. <laughs> <laughs>